Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 44. And today we have not one, but two special guests on the show. Give it up for the leading lights of the pro photo world, educators, partners, and hosts of the hugely successful and wildly entertaining Photobomb Podcast. Give it up for Mr. Gary Hughes and Bure Perry, both in stereo here today. How are you guys? You're good? Did he say hugely successful, Bure? I think he said, I think he said hugely successful. I'm more hugely of like a, meh, we're pretty okay. We do okay. Yeah, we do fine. You know, well, it's compared like to them in the in the podcast world, we are hugely successful. I mean, they've like like 44, they like started last week with their yeah, podcast. Yeah. So you and I are like old men, you know, the old veterans. We're like Johnny Carson and they're like some guy doing an open mic night. Camera Shake Podcast, uh, officially the bad teenage mustache of podcasts. It's going to get well, there one day, but right now it's, it's just, we're, just <laughs> we're chugging along, chugging along. You know, Thank you guys just, for having us. Well, Thank that's you. all right. We're only the best, man. We only have the best guests on this show. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> of course. Of course. There's no question. How cool. good How good can it be most of your guests are from England? Yeah, that's what? fair. Well, I mean, you know, really? Well, I mean, you know, to be fair, actually, you know, we've had a lot of, I mean, especially recently, like maybe over the last, I don't know, maybe two months or something, we've had a lot of international guests um, on the show, which because of the time difference has like screwed our days over somewhat. Right. So it's like, yeah. it's like still 2020 there, right? It's, <laughs> yeah, pretty well, you know, you wouldn't know any different if you looked out the window because we're still in a complete national lockdown right now. So Yeah, well, we live in Florida, both Boo Ray and I, and in two separate cities. He's in Tampa. I'm in Orlando. That's about a two-hour drive on the motorway, as you guys say. Right. And, uh, you know, here our governor doesn't care if we live or die, so we're just allowed to do whatever we want, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's pretty, I think it's we very have free. more... Yeah, it's, it's it's very very liberating to know that if very I want to go to a supermarket and contract a deadly novel virus, that I I have the the liberty to do so. God bless right. the USA. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys, when when the whole thing started, like last whatever March or April or something, you were kind of locked down as well back then, right? Yeah, everybody would like the Queen gave a speech and stuff. Like everybody locked down for about three months or so. Boo, was it? Yeah, yeah, there was it was what was funny was that we we were much more stringent and locked down when it was much not as big a deal as it is mm. now. It's much yes. bigger deal now, but we're much more stringent now. I mean, we're much more like, well, whatever, because it's just been too long. Yeah, I think Eventually, when we locked down, I, I there were like a hundred deaths a day, and now there's still like yeah. fifteen hundred deaths. I don't care, you know, yeah. I like like if your friend, like if their finger catches on fire three days in a row, you're like, oh my God, we have to do something. And then it, if it happens for a year, their whole body could be catching on fire. And you're like, yeah, Bob's burning again, whatever. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> you just don't, you don't, you know, after a while, you just get to where it, 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 nothing phases you. And that's what's happened to us here. Unfortunately, yeah. it's, it's just become the background noise in the news cycle for a lot of us in the States. Now we have, we have a, you know, a very different way of, of government here. The States have a lot of control over certain things. And we have 50 States all with different laws and different ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. So you could go to New York City and they'll be locked down. Chicago, they'll be locked down. You come down here past the Mason-Dixon line in the south and they're like, pan, pan, there's a pandemic? Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's going on? I made a, I made a, you know, a huge uh, comment right off the bat and you, you guys just whiffed it and went right by the fact that I just basically grossly insulted the entire continent of the United Kingdom and y'all just let it go. You well, that's go. the thing that the British do is they don't, they're not confrontational people. They but did they not are, rise up. No, they don't. They they quietly tut at you uh, for like yes. when you cut a British person in in a queue in a line, they don't ever say anything to you. They'll just go, 
And that's it. That's that's yeah. the biggest rise you'll get out of a British person. In America, they shoot you. You yeah, get so the shiv. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You get you shivved. Shanked in the kidneys. Shake, shake, shake from behind. That's I also a, want to point out that I'm actually the only American citizen on the podcast. Right that's now. true. That's true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, don't hold it against me. I was born in Wolverhampton. Uh, that's, that's where I hail from. <laughs> Ooh. My family moved to the. Yeah, I see your face, Nick. I see your face. That's the reality. You know, but here's the thing about England. No matter where you're from in England, when you're in another place and tell someone where you're from, you get that same reaction. Nobody hates every other part of their own country like the English. Like if you'd be like, if you're in London and somebody goes, "Yeah, I'm down from Manchester," and they go, you know, or if you're in Manchester, Manchester. you say, "Yeah, I just came up from London." They're like. You know, it's the same thing. So I could say I'm from London, Birmingham, anywhere you like, and I'd still get a tut and an eye roll from you. That's just how the English are. <laughs> like, well, that is very true. I mean, you know, I used to live in a place called Milton Keynes, which is sort of, you know, the which everybody makes, no matter where you're from in the UK, everybody makes fun of Milton Keynes because yeah. apparently we have concrete cows or something. I've never actually seen them. <laughs> and around about <laughs> every hundred yards. Oh, yeah, right. That's right. Highest concentration of, uh, you know, roundabouts. Or circular traffic, or whatever you call it, and what that's a thing worth hating an entire city over, is it? Okay, that's right. Yeah. Oh, I just yeah, want to, no big deal. Fine. Yeah, for yeah, sure. sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's, there are lots of like the funny things about this particular place. It's the only place in Britain where um, streets have literally no names but numbers, so it's like a H and a V system. You know, like very similar. Sounds very efficient, very German. Sounds it's very, very good. which is of course why I lived there for such a long time. That's not that. <laughs> so I, you know, I have a theory about this because I've taught in London a couple of times at the SWPP conference. That mm. those great people over there, and I ask consistently in my courses where everyone thinks the worst place in in England is. What is the worst? What is the worst place in England? What is, is Nick? Like, what do you think the worst place in England is? Oh. Oof. Oh, there are so many. <laughs> you see, <laughs> I gotta think. I gotta. I gotta just uh, quickly think. Where do we not have any listeners already? So yeah, yeah. In that place. See, what do you, you got, got one, Nick? Huh? Oh, I don't know. It's got to be you know anywhere north of here. You know. It's... Yeah, exactly my point. Exactly my <laughs> I point. Like I, although, although I have heard Hull a lot. That that is consistently on the list of places that you don't yeah. want to hang out. Well, although the thing I'm, is. I grew up in a place called Slough, which is just around the corner from where I live live now. Sounds and romantic. that has been consistently in the top 10 worst towns in England for decades. Who makes that list, though? And why do they make that list? Like, that's I think a really crappy thing to do is make that list. It's so discouraging. You know, it's not like the British national identity isn't we made the bottom 10. All right, everybody, let's pull up, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and let's let's improve. Let's get us off that <laughs> list. They'll be like, screw everybody else. They don't know. They don't know. <laughs> exactly. It's a it's a proud proud moment, you know, to be in the, the bottom ten. It's uh, <laughs> it's you know voted for by the people from those towns. It's fantastic. Well, it, clearly, we always root for the underdogs. So you know that's uh, a you know, that's claim to fame. I think. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you make yeah. it to the top bottom. So what can we do for you guys on the podcast today? What what do you need from us? We're here to give you all of it. Like Boo Ray well, and I will talk forever. So what's what what do you got? I think first Excellent. on that list is going to be just some abuse. Is that all right? Yes, I love abuse. <laughs> Boo Ray. <laughs> I think we've got that one out of the way already. Yeah. I think there'll okay. be a few more jokes against the British, which I will also to take hear. to heart. I'll I'll line oh, up wait. on the British side. Cool. I love the See, British. I've been I've been to London. It was very enjoyable. I'm fascinated by uh, Great Britain. I'm fascinated by the idea of Great Britain. So like you don't know, you don't realize that Americans think that Great Britain is two things. There's the city 
There's London, which is like, you know, New York, you know, it's this great, beautiful city and everything. And then if you move outside of London, everything is just fields and Thomas Kincaid painting cottages and small hamlets and village. like you, you live in a village, right? There's like a stone wall in front of your house and stuff is growing on the roof and you're out walking your Shetland pony or something every day and you're going down to the pub to have a pint. That's what we think because that's what's been pushed to us. And I know that if I went there, it'd be like, oh, you live in some crappy apartment block in some terrible place, just like we have in America. You yeah. have horrible, horrible places just like we do. But on television, we've just been pushed that everybody lives in a quaint little village. So yeah, nice. and we think that everyone sounds like Harry Potter because the, the yes. British accent is so uh, it's so held on a pedestal here. Like if someone walks into a room and starts talking with a British accent, everybody stops what they're doing. And everything's they, and they better. Look, everything's yeah. better with a British accent. You're funnier with a British accent. You're more serious with a British accent. I don't care what it is. British accent brings home the goods in every single way. The only you thing that's it, better with an American accent is rap music and country. Or you could say also a criminal mastermind with a British accent. That's true. Sure. All the bad guys have to be British. Yeah, yeah they really yes. do. And it's because, really because, because that's how you know they're smart. <laughs> <laughs> Is that they sound British, right? You know, I mean, just try to watch Die Hard without, you know, Snape playing the lead bad guy. That was guy. Hans and, Gruber, and I believe he was playing a German, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yes, yeah, but he right, still yeah. had the accent. He's a still German had that accent. European accent. I okay. would love it. Oh, it's all, would, it's all European to us. We don't care. See, I would love it if they dubbed uh, like Hollywood movies with a British accent. That would be hilarious. Because they like, do that with some kids' shows. Mm. Oh, yeah. I've seen a different, like Paw Patrol. My kids watch Paw Patrol. Yeah. And in England, they all have English accents. And in the States, they're all American. They use two different voice actors for Paw Patrol in different countries. Although anybody who thinks that the British accent is this, like, just universally beautiful and storied and intelligent sounding thing. There are places in England that are that you couldn't even recognize it as English that I've been yeah. to. Oh, sure. I mean? Obviously, you've never spent a lot of time in Birmingham. You've never spent a ton <laughs> oh, of man. time in the black country because you don't have any idea if you're an American that they have like uh, if you were to say Ray, question for you, what is the most like podunk? What area of the country has the most podunk? Redneck, toothless, inbred. Where? What part of the country would you be like if you think someone's got a stupid, bad, terrible accent? Where would they be from? Tennessee, Tennessee, like the hills, though. Like, <laughs> yeah, like Tennessee, the, the hills, the hills of Tennessee, or or Oklahoma, the hollers of Kentucky, maybe. Yeah, the like, hollers okay. of Kentucky. Ah, oh, yeah, the Kentucky hollers. There you go. Yeah, yeah. you holler. can't understand. You don't know what the hell they're saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. language. It's not English. You don't know what that is. Exactly. And England has just as many in like an area one eighteenth the size of the United States. So yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> That's very true. I mean, that was totally confusing for me in order to first move to, to the UK because I, I really couldn't understand half of what people were saying to me. I can't understand yeah, what it, you're saying now. I've just been well, nodding the whole time. <laughs> That's it. Burai, do you have any, any experience with film photography at all? Well, yeah, because I'm quite old. Uh, so I started in film and had my own dark room and was in the, you know, in high school, worked in the high school dark room and the yearbook staff. And I know what deck tall smells like. I know D 76. Right. I know stop bath and fixer. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's right. I know all this stuff, but, um, man, once digital came along, I didn't become a professional photographer until digital came along. So I did all that in like in high school and stuff. And then I got away from it for years. I was a, a disc jockey and, and a performer for years. And then uh, in the 2000s, like 2007 was when I came back to it. And by then it was all digital. And thank God, because I never really considered being a professional photographer in the days of film because it was just too much pressure. I, I just I still live in awe uh, to the people who shot weddings on film and were just, oh. you know, I hope I got oh. it. Man, <laughs> I hope I got ultimate. it. 
ultimate nightmare. Yeah, I, mean, well, I, I got 120 frames at this six hour wedding and I hope I got it. I'll find out yeah. when it comes back from the lab. Yeah, you, I can't, oh man, that's just a you got the, your tighter. I wouldn't poop for a week. Is that have you got? <laughs> did you get the first kiss? Uh, I think so. Maybe. I think so. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I hope so. The, uh, we'll the funny out. thing is, my dad, my parents are both photographers. They retired from photography. Now my dad's just turning 80 in a couple of weeks. And um, I remember working in their studio as a kid. So I developed black and white headshots in the in the darkroom. I would use a small enlarger and made eight by tens. And and my dad would tell me all these stories about the film days. You know, like when he first started shooting weddings back in the UK. And this would have been in the 1960s. He he worked for a guy. And the way that they shot weddings back then was this guy had like 12 photographers working for him. And he would give everybody an assignment. You would go to the wedding and there was no photography during the ceremony and there was no reception photography. Essentially, what you would do is just the family formals. And so he would get a role of like 10, 20, 30, however many images there were, just not that many mm. images. And then you go, you'd shoot the family formals, you'd run back to a dark room, give your film to a guy who worked for you, he'd make a contact sheet, then you'd take that contact sheet to the reception, and then you'd sell prints to the mm. guests at their tables. And that's how they made their money in wow. the wedding photography business, like in the 60s. So that's bizarrely, that's just wild to me. Yeah, I'm getting used to I used to talk to people who like, you know, told me that they used to shoot two, three weddings a day, like one in the morning, one midday and one later on in the afternoon. Right. And it's, like, it's really unthinkable. Today. Well, there were no like unlimited wedding coverage. No. BS that they have today, because yeah. that is just insanity. To it me. wasn't Three. a wedding. It was a portrait shoot on location. That's right. all it was. It was a family portrait shoot where everybody's in a tux. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a portrait shoot. And then also the cake cutting shoot. You go pose them, you know, and do that shot. Uh, and that was about it. Maybe a couple other things. And that was it. We had a guy here locally. There's a restaurant here called the Columbia. It's a Cuban restaurant. It's been here for like a hundred years, right? And uh, there was a guy here locally and a good friend of ours, Kevin Newsom. I actually worked for him and then eventually bought his studio. And his thing was at the Columbia that he would take pictures of people at their table. And then he had a dark room set up in the back of the Columbia. He would take pictures at their table, go back in his dark room, process, develop, print, and then go back and sell them to the people at their table. Table shots, baby. Make Before money. Before they finish Every dinner. Time. Before they finish dinner, it's got to process the negative and print the picture. Crazy. That's amazing. Yeah, dude. Does I tell you what, when I was shooting weddings, the thing I made the most money on every single time were table shots. Just go around to every single table, photograph the couples, and then we get their email address. Then we would email all the guests, the gallery, and we put the table shots as the first part of the gallery. Mm. And I and we sold thousands in reproductions off of every wedding all the way up until we stopped shooting weddings because we did this and every single order had a table shot in it and it was the stupidest thing and they and they were big in they were big in the 80s and 90s and then they really fell out of fashion photographers stopped doing table shots and then we just started doing them and making money and here's a funny story about Bure and I is I gave Bure that tip one time when I was in uh, Tampa and I was speaking to his uh, I forget what what was it a convention or something, and I yeah. I laid this out for you and I said hey you know and then the next time I saw you you had given me like a hundred dollar gift card as a thank you, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> a Facebook gift card which I don't know if they do that anymore. Do you remember if they do that? <laughs> wow, You're so, well, so like, you can so you can buy something from Facebook. No, it's basically you buy the gift card through Facebook and then they would let you just pick how, whichever one of their partner vendors you wanted ah, to use it okay. at. I forget. All right. I totally forgot about that. I gave You're you so money. so up on the I technology, man. I haven't seen those in a long time. Like Facebook, Facebook gift, gift card. I don't know if they do them anymore. 
Is Facebook still around? I'm not sure. <laughs> it yeah. probably is. Hey, hey, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Although I, I would say that the equivalent now is Amazon gift card. It's funny about mm. my my mom, who is a photographer. She is so bad at technology that you can't send her a text hardly or an email and everything is difficult. But every Christmas and birthday, I get like a an eBay gift card. <laughs> it's like... Why do I have an eBay gift card? I don't understand. I, I've bought like four things on eBay in 20 years. Why would I have an eBay gift card? But I think it's just something through like a weird thing through her credit card company that she could just send those out. I'm not really sure. But yeah, it is. Uh, tech, the, those gift cards are mostly useless and, and most of them don't get used. I want to pick apart the settings because if you look at Nick, Nick is like some sort of a professional. Look at look at the lighting he's got behind he's him. Beautiful. You know, and he's beautiful. Okay, he's got he's beautiful. He looks like Nick. Like I want to date Nick. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like Nick <laughs> is cool. And then if you go over to Kirsten, like he's got this. I don't know Russian nesting dolls of of lenses on the shelf behind him. I'm not sure what that's about. Do you use those lenses? I don't think just. Are they just decorations back there? <laughs> What's that about? Yeah. That, like, also, you're tilted. Also, your horizon practical. is off. That's because my laptop is on a music stand. Which still get your life together. A music stand's oh, like man. 20 quid. Just just get your life together, man. You're a photographer. Look, it's, you don't shoot real estate, obviously. Well, <laughs> luckily, luckily, what, what you can see is that we're shooting ourselves with separate cameras. So what you see is not what's going to be in the oh, Oh, so this is just, you give us the crappy one. You get the low res. You get the low res. Okay, understood. They're doing that thing that we don't do that making an effort. Yep, effort. You're doing the effort thing. Well, I tell you what, what is, you know, obviously it's a sign of the times because at the moment you can see Nick is at his place, I'm in my place. Usually when we do this podcast, we're normally in the same place. So we're, you know, we're on the same set if you want. Um which is sort of for us was the whole point of doing a podcast because initially we started out just talking to each other about photography stuff. Um, now being in the situation that we're in with, you know, uh, lockdown and everything else, you know, we can't, you know, we just can't be in each other's houses. Yeah, we've been doing that for, we we did the, the driving because we're two hours apart. So literally mm. probably for the first hundred episodes, like we, I would say close to that. I, I would drive because yeah. Bure's like, if I have to put any effort into this show, I am not going to do it. So I did the, <laughs> so I wanted to do it more than he did. And now I think it means as much to you or more than it does to me even. Cause I, I yeah, it's nice that you think that. I did. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you just bury those feelings deep down inside. You're not going to see 60, my friend. And then, so yeah. I would drive the two hours and the two hours back, but we would record three episodes, four episodes in one mm. sitting, but even going like once a month, it was just like losing a whole day every single month. And then the editing in bulk like that. So we just, we have been doing it remotely since uh, about the last 186 episodes or something like that. Mm. And Man, it's so much easier. And the best part is now we pay someone else to edit it. So neither of us have to put in that much effort, which is yeah, pretty yeah. fantastic. Like zero, zero effort podcast. That's what I that's what I like about our show. Yeah, I mean we've we've been trying to kind of refine things ever, you know, ever since we started. Of course, we started in exactly the situation that, that we're in now, you know, in the first um in the first national lockdown in the UK. Um and main, the reason why we started the podcast in the first place, as all of our 10 listeners will have heard many times by now was the fact that we had, you know, contracts canceled and everything else. And we were just literally, you know, sitting at home going like, okay, well, what are we going to do now? Right. And yeah. so, you know, and so we kind of thought, well, 
seeing that we spent, you know, the lion's share of the, of the day talking about photography anyway, we might as well start a podcast. There might be some other nerds out there who might even want to listen to that. And um, now, uh, question though, are you guys going to, because this sort of came out of the pandemic, right? The Camera Shake podcast. And so right. is it something that you want to continue with when you get busy shooting again, when things are loosened up? I think definitely. It's become part of the furniture now, you know? Oh, I think sure. after that 10-week point where we started to get into each, you know, we were on the same same set, it's, I, I wouldn't look back. We love it. We absolutely yeah. love it. You yeah. Know? And we, we were saying last week that, you know, had COVID and all the you know, crap that's going on out there, had that not happened, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. What episode number are you guys on now? 280. We'll film two. We'll record 288 on... Yeah, two, yeah. 288 on Monday, yeah. If we were going for the longest time in the beginning, um, I think when I listen back sometimes to earlier episodes, um, it's, you know... Wait, you listen to our podcast? <laughs> yeah, because I wanted to ask that question, by the way. That was my other question nobody suggested. Why are right. you on this podcast? How That's do you a really know who good we are? question. Right, I listened to, listen to your very first episode. Oh, oh my God. Called, called Love and Hate, I believe. Oh my God, that needs to come off. That actually was our most listened to episode for a long time because people discover the podcast yeah. and immediately they go back to number one because they want to listen to them all the way through. Yeah. But for us, it's like they listen to one, then two, and then three. They're like, I think I'll go back to what they're doing now. I think it's, yeah. <laughs> well, it's I, quite I, a lot better. I tell you what, I actually, I worked, when I first discovered you guys, um, it was, to me, your listening to your podcast was, was really like a driving podcast for me because it was exactly the right length. And I used to... Um, spent all of what was it 2018 or something or where are we now no, 2019 i shot a lot of uh boxing events i shot a lot of um like fights and whatever else and so i used to like drive to these different places in the south of england and so i'd be on the road for like you know a couple of hours or something and i would basically hammer through a couple of episodes because it would just you know it would just fit and uh and so i worked backwards and I think I got to, I can't, I can't even remember, but I probably got to like somewhere like 20, like episodes you'd made in like 2017, 2016, at which point the cameras that you were talking about were already so outdated that I kind of figured, okay, I might, I might have to stop here. But, um, but we have the same experience because our first episode was called uh, Done is Better Than Perfect. And because that was literally the thing for us, um, we'd been talking about the idea of podcasting for on and off, probably six months to a year or something beforehand. And it was one of these things, you know, like, because life's busy, kids, you know, family life's busy, work's busy. You kick the can down the road and it's just like an idea. And then COVID, you know, COVID hits and you're like, okay, we got to do something to stay creative. We got to make stuff. We just got to do something to not go totally insane. I watched a thing on Creative Live. Uh, yeah, that's right. So I discovered Gary's Creative Life um, course on... Ah, Fat Gary. You saw Fat Gary. Yeah, Fat Gary was well, great. Fat so Gary was, like, was lovable. I tell you what, though, man. I, you miss you know, Fat Gary? Really? You miss sure. him? Fat nah. Gary was a good guy. Fat Gary didn't make you feel insecure or old. Fat Gary was just a little roly-poly, uh, you know, teddy bear lumberjack, you know? Yeah, but like, yeah, that's good. true. And he's like, yes, he's younger than me, but he's fat, so he's not the best <laughs> right. I'm like, he's younger than me, but he's obviously falling apart. Yeah, but I, yeah, I, do, I mean, I, I, started, I started watching that, and um, you started talking about Star Wars, and I was in. That was it. I was oh, in. is that it, huh? Okay. <laughs> 100%. So, I think that know. may be where the whole Star Wars thing started, because, like, literally, people send me stuff. Like, I get Star Wars bobbleheads in the mail. 
from right. people. Like, and I have no idea. Like, my whole office is covered in Star Wars bobbleheads, and I haven't bought a single one. <laughs> and it perpetuates itself because people come in and they go, oh, you really like Star Wars. I was like, yeah, you know, I saw it when I was like nine, and it was the best thing I've ever seen. And I mean, I watch the movies now because why wouldn't you? But like, I don't have a Star Wars tattoo and I didn't name my kid Anakin or anything. Sorry if I don't know if anybody did that. But like, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's still it's something that I like. But for me, it's a movie. And I, and I constantly look at people like blaming people for like ruining their childhood because they changed Star Wars. And I think, what if it was just a movie? What if it was just a movie and we could just enjoy it? And or not enjoy it. Like, it's fine. Don't worry. They'll make another one. And then, then another one. And eventually, there'll be one that you like, I promise. Like, Of course, Gary, you realize you don't have to put the bubbleheads up in the office, right? Well, you, they're gifts. <laughs> I got to display. I can't take them home. I'm not putting them in my house. <laughs> Some weeks back. And um, he wrote something, like, in his blog or something to say, like, you know, to basically say, oh, he was on, he was on the podcast, la, 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 and he enjoyed it, yada, yada. And then he said... Uh, and the most amazing thing is like, you know, I spent two hours in the podcast and we didn't even mention F-Stop uh, once. So I kind of thought that's, you know, that's not a bad thing because, you know, like you can find out which F-Stop to use to shoot wildlife just about anywhere else on the internet. You don't well, there's, this there's, no doubt, there's no doubt that our, our podcast would not talk about photography at all if it wasn't that we needed a premise to exist. <laughs> right, yeah, that's, that's, that's really the only, that's only the reason, the only reason we really talk about photography. In the early days, yes, but now it's just, mm. we need a premise to exist in the way that you watch a, I don't know, a sports show and sports is just the premise and what they really want to do is just talk. That's us. We you can know, easily those. shift over and just be like a pop culture and movie podcast, movie yes. and music or something like that. Like we, we would be just as happy doing that. The problem is, is like our audience is all photographers. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, see, the thing, you're absolutely right there because, you know, if, I mean, if, you know, if I think back how we started in the beginning, you know, uh, it being sort of, you know, born out of the pandemic at the start, you know, there was, there was a, def a definite element of Nick and me just needing to have somebody else to talk to actually. And so, so it became almost like a therapeutic thing for us to do. And, you know, and I've, I've spoken about this many times on this, on this podcast is that it really gave us structure because we, you know, we record it on a Monday typically, and then we release the episode on the Thursday. And so, you know, when you're like, when you spend three, four months at home, um, every day, every week, just it feels like the same. Do you know what I mean? So you lose that kind of track. You know, when you wake up in the morning, you go, I have no idea what day it is. And you know what? I don't give a damn. When we're going to record an episode, how far in advance do you think of what we're going to talk about? Uh, 15 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I never know what's going to come out of my mouth. He says, welcome to the Photobomb Podcast. My name is Boo Ray Perry. And with me as always is Gary Hughes. And then I have no idea what I'm going to say until right that second. And right. I mean, no, when you say what we're going to talk about, I mean, I research like photography news to talk about. Right. Yeah. The like news stories, minutes, but I'll, I'll get it advanced. I don't know yeah. what we, you and I are going to talk about. No. Although like if something funny happens to me or I have a bit in the week that happens to me, I'm like, oh, that's a bit. Then I'll make a note, you know, mention this during the podcast. If you, if you have time, you know, I like to have something set aside to fall back on like, oh, well, we need another 15 mm -hmm. minutes of banner. Well, I've got this thing that happened with the dog this week that I can talk about. And that comes from my radio experience of, of you know, everything was live. So you had to always yeah. know you had something in the bank that you could pull from if you needed it. Um, and so I'll do that. But I don't. No, I don't spend a whole lot of time. Really what no we need are like, <laughs> we need about a million listeners who are just really interested in hearing us talk about ourselves. That's yes. Yes. We, we rarely have guests. We'd be huge. We just, yeah. Yeah. How about that? You, so if there are a million people out there and you want to hear two 
oddly insecure narcissists talk about themselves for about 55 minutes. I would encourage you to check out the Photobomb Photography Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else podcasts are found. How has it actually developed for you over the last sort of four or five years or so? So you started off like probably primarily talking about photography and, and whatnot and probably a lot of preparation going into each episode, I'm sure, in the early days. Yeah, we had more guests in the beginning too. We felt like the uh, the best thing to do was to bring on other people that would provide the content. But what we found was what we the podcast was birthed out of he and I just talking to each other and enjoying those conversations. And so at some point, and Bure really guided me into this because I'm always the one that's like, we have to plan it. We have to come up with a thing. We have to have a gimmick. We have to have a whatever. And he's always like, that's, he's like, let's make the show we want. And then whoever wants to listen to it will listen to it. And then I don't, he's, you know, I don't want to make a show that I don't want to make just because it'll be more popular. And so what we've really settled on is it's really like our weekly check-in with each other. And it's gotten more refined because we've just gotten better at being with each other and talking to each other. And Bure's got so much experience and he's so good. It's all, most of it has just been me learning to stop talking when I can see on Bure's face that he's got something he wants to say or like not stepping on his jokes. That was really hard at the beginning. He would set something up beautifully and I would just, (laughs) just run right over top of it. And he's, you know, you can see there's a bit of a sort of a long suffering on his face when, (laughs) when I, when he's basically gently guiding me into not being totally useless at this. And it's been, not only have I had a great time doing it, Bure and I have spent a lot of time together. I think we've developed a really good rapport and back and forth, mm. but I've also gotten really, really good at talking and thinking on my feet and being on camera. And all of it is because of the hundreds and hundreds of hours we've spent recording with each other. And that's, that's just been, it's been a really cool skill set to develop actually. Were you editing a lot more in the early days? Yeah, obviously Less. I know you were doing it yourself, but were you cutting more out? Low, low. We actually, if it, we threw out a few episodes. We've got at least really? 20 episodes that we recorded that never saw the light of day for one reason or another. But um, we actually edit more now because the way we used to record was we would just both be plugged into a, a, a mixer. And that would just record one audio signal. And all I would do is basically put the bumper on the beginning and the end. And that's it. You know, I didn't didn't go in and do anything. Now I've got two separate audio tracks and I'll go in and I'll edit it out when somebody clears their throat or they click their tongue against the roof of their mouth. If there's too long of a gap, I will cut it out and make it sound better. Mm-hmm. I will add time or take time away to make jokes land a little better. So it's it's a, like if Bure says something clever, but it takes him two seconds to get there, I put it almost right on top of what I just said. So he sounds great. Like we do quite a lot more editing. And by we, I mean, Daniel, our editor does a lot more editing. Um, but I think the results are better. I'm I'm more particular about stuff like that, you know, and we probably put more more effort into the editing process than we should for a podcast with an audience our size. Mm. This is all news to me. By the way, it's all news to me. I have no idea what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, I had no idea that you were seeing a waveform of our podcast. (laughs) I had no idea that you were shortening up my jokes. Don't touch my jokes. (laughs) (laughs) If you didn't notice, what's the difference? Exactly. That's my point as well, is that he's saying, telling me now that we do, he does all, they do all this editing to the podcast and I never notice it. Well, a lot of it is the delay from recording on zoom. So there's like a half a second of in real time where you're actually, what I'm talking to you, like the delay is in zoom and not in your joke. 
And so right. I usually will take uh, one of the things that is sometimes a start at the beginning and Bure is usually, at least to me, about a half a second to a quarter of a second lagging. And so yeah. I will just tap his audio file over to the left so our line's up better. And that solves 90% of the timing issues, just making it, just cutting a quarter of a second out of his audio at the beginning and moving it to line it up. You know, I, I edit I edit a podcast for a guy in uh, Indiana as well, and that's just a pure audio podcast. So do exactly what you're just describing, those type of type of things, tidying it up, tightening it up, getting rid of the ums, the ahs, the coughs, the mouth slaps, all of that kind of kind of yeah. stuff, right? Once somebody stuff. points the, out the we, tongue click to you or the lip smacking, mm, you can't unhear it. You can't. You can never unhear it. It is the worst sound. You, it's horrible to hear that. Just listen but, to this. This is what it sounds like. <laughs> it's the tongue clicking against the roof of your mouth because when you're listening and somebody asks you a question, your tongue peels itself off the roof of your mouth before you start to talk again. And that's that terrible sound. And I, I swear to God, I must have removed a million tongue yeah. clicks from our audio over the years. It, it is painful to hear that. But the problem we have with doing this as a video podcast is that you can't remove a lot of that stuff. No, because then, then it would just do be a cut, in the, cut in the video and it would just look awful. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a bit of a nightmare with, with stuff like that. Have you ever considered doing um, your podcast as a video version? We've done a few live things on our Facebook page, but Bure, that sounds like more effort, right? Like, yes, if you, if you have to get dressed and do your hair to do the podcast, yeah. no. <laughs> There's a reason I was a disc jockey and not a television personality for 20 years, and it was because I could go to work, you know, hungover with no sleep and sweatpants, and you couldn't tell. And I enjoyed right. that. I greatly enjoyed the, uh, and uh, you know, the total, no one knew what you looked like. No one could see you and you could create and be whatever you wanted to be on the air. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Love that. How long were you a DJ for? This job? Uh, 20 years. I started oh, when oh, I was, wow. uh, when I was 17 and then retired, uh, when I was about, uh, 37, 35, 37, I retired and became a stay at home dad. And then um, when the housing market in America crashed in 2007, uh, my wife and I owned, I owned a, a successful title insurance company for when you get title insurance when you buy a home or refi. I say my wife and I, my wife had this company. She ran this big company she ran and it was our, we owned it. And I was a stay-at-home dad. I was retired and, and I did the books for the company. And then we lost everything. When the market crashed, we lost everything in a month. We lost 12 employees and 1.5 million a year in sales were gone in a month and we had to shutter and it was okay. You have to go back to work. <laughs> and I was like, I, I don't want to go back to radio. I retired from radio. And the only other thing I ever enjoyed doing other than radio was when I was a photographer in high school and when I had a dark room when I was a kid. And so I started being a photographer at that point and uh, here we are today. No looking back, eh? Yeah. You're nearly, nearly a millionaire, buddy. That close. I was, I was very close. <laughs> If we'd had a couple more years uh, before the fall, then I would have become a millionaire. Yeah. Oh, no. And then we lost. And then we lost everything. And you know, had to leave our house. Had to, you know, the typical sad story. But you know, it's the journey, right? I mean, look at where I am today. Look at my friends. Look at the people I know now that I wouldn't know if I was still some stay-at-home dad. And you know, so I don't regret it at all. That's not true. I absolutely regret it. <laughs> I could just kiss off all of y'all if I could just have the money again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, uh, but, uh, I mean, if it's been I all right. Turn back it's, time. Yeah, it's worked out. It's worked out okay. Yeah, I think that it's funny to think about right about the exact same time 
I would I had gone back to school and I was working in a flooring warehouse when I took up photography, which is what my parents were kind of, uh, you know, they did. And so I never wanted to do it. But Julie and I, my wife, we had met and we'd been dating a little while, about six months. And we started a photography business together, like on the side in like 2007. And so we both had full-time jobs and we were just really ramping up, feeling out the industry, learning our craft and not really too worried about making a ton of money doing it. And the same week, we both got laid off of our jobs in the same week. And that was in 2008. And so we're like, looked at each other. I remember we're sitting in my Toyota Corolla, looking at each other going like, okay, do we find jobs or do we run with this photography business? And we were stupid. So we decided to run with the photography (laughs) business. And that was, yeah, it was 2008. So 13 years ago. And uh, it was funny how many photographers must have come into the industry and then gone again because of that global financial meltdown from 2007 to 2012, you know, and how many are still in the business that got in at that time. Mm. Do you think a similar thing um, could happen again now with, you know, with uh, a lot of people having lost their jobs and potentially... Oh, yeah. The economy is like Wiley Coyote has run off Mm. the cliff and he's still suspended in midair and he hasn't looked down yet. Like things will get worse before they get better. There's no question, I think. Um, you know, I don't think the the economic impact has been felt yet. Take, for example, the wedding and events industry, which is 40% of my income. That's not going to come back for a year after COVID is gone. Because you what you have is a lot of large companies that put a lot of money into corporate events, into, into sponsorship, and they don't want to be the first one to come back and be a super spreader of COVID. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. So like, yes, people will be ready to do this stuff again. I think weddings will come back sooner, but the industry's not going to... The industry that employs everyone here in Florida, pretty much, and the entire wedding industry, I don't think it'll be back to like it was before for a year or two. Mm. Uh, I think it's going to take a while. And so, yeah, there's going to be a lot of long-term economic stress that we have not even begun to feel yet. Like right now, we've been punched in the face and we have not yet hit the mat as far as I'm concerned. So like, we're going to get back up. It's going to be fine. The economy comes and fits and starts. It always goes up. It always goes down. But it's going to be worse before it's better, I think. Boo, you have, you're smarter than me. What do you- <laughs> I agree. I agree. Uh, my calendar is completely empty for 2021. I don't have a single thing on it. I don't have a single wedding or bar mitzvah or any event. And events and weddings were probably 80% of my business, if not more. And once it comes back, it's not going to be like, okay, it's safe. Great. We have a bar mitzvah next weekend. No, it's going to be, we have a bar mitzvah a year from now. We have a <laughs> wedding a year from now. Uh, you know, I just booked a wedding for, I did, I have a, a friend of mine contacting me for his wedding for 2022 for 13, 14 months from now. And that's going to be, and we're not at, we're not yet at the point where people are willing to book the weddings. Mm. You know, he's, he's a, he's an outlier. <laughs> that he's that he's booking the wedding. So uh, wedding photographers and event photographers are more than anyone are really going to feel feel the yeah. brunt. I think that um, headshots and portraits are where you want to try and push and concentrate if you can to try and make up some of the lost ground because you're going to have lost ground for a while. You have to add new products. You have to diversify your studio, even if it's only temporarily in order to make the gap. And that's what we've done. We've actually added video. And video has started to replace our event income. Like I've got four video jobs over the next month that we would have never ventured into it. And the odd thing is you guys started your podcast 
because of the pandemic, I started my YouTube channel in the pandemic and bumbling my way through learning how to do video. I actually have learned a lot and how to do video. And now I'm offering professional video services to my clients. And is it what I want to do? I don't know. I'm having fun with it right now. I don't know if I want it to be my long-term gig, but it is really helping. And so sometimes economic situations, you know, there's natural disasters, there's market collapses, there's terrorist attacks, there's all kinds of things that can affect business. And if you're not prepared for that as, as, as a business, I mean, nobody saw this coming. But what people do see coming is that about every decade, at least once a decade, something happens that knocks all the chess pieces off the board mm-hmm. that you have to be prepared for. And it was it was 9-11. It's, it's hurricanes. It's earthquakes. It's fires. It, it's it's depressions. It's, you know, it's a, you know, it's it's a mass shooting. Something is going to come every decade or so and it's going to completely reset the game and the people that can pivot and diversify are the ones who survive and you know like you said earlier nick not everything that comes out of a a tragedy or a downturn or a bad situation is bad you know you might diversify into a business like headshots or portraits if you were a wedding shooter and then you do that to survive and then you realize holy crap i like this better this is a better way of life or, you know, or something similar. So, you know, you can't control the change. It's coming. The only thing you can change is you. The bombshell theory is one of my favorites. It's a used in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it says, I can change no one else by my direct action. I can only change myself. And if you remember that and you use that in your life, you realize the only thing I can affect is me. So what do I have to do? You can stand there and look up at the sky. You can bitch at the government. You can complain about your neighbors. You can be mad at the fat slob who doesn't wear his mask to the grocery store. Whatever you got going on that's upsetting you, you can still only change yourself. And the the sooner you realize that you are the only thing you have control over, the sooner you can be successful. Do you offer therapy sessions by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh-uh. my wife is my therapist. I just this is, did all the this, you're pretty much experiencing it right now. This yeah, is, this is it. This yeah, is this his is therapy session. Yeah, yeah. I love but it. That's that. That's all. That's that's all I got on that. You guys want to talk about Marvel and Star Wars some more? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a therapy session for me for sure. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. What we need is a distraction. I think you know. I've been. Yeah. Who hasn't been streaming, uh, you know, their comfort food to feel better right now? You know what I mean? It's uh, we'll be we'll get back. We'll get back to it. It'll take time. And you do what you got to do. We're entrepreneurs. We're creative entrepreneurs. We're hustlers, baby. We're going to yeah. make it. You know, we're going to do it. You just got to kind of like change it up for right now. Do some workshops, you know, get a get a side job at, the, at, at Costa, you know, whatever you got to do to make ends meet, make ends meet because it'll get better again. Just be ready for when that happens. Um, you know, it's, I, I can agree with everything you guys have just said. And that's what, well, you what, should. We're very what, smart. Absolutely. What, uh, what worries me about this country uh, here is that we, we have a slightly different attitude and it's not a good one, um, towards lots of things. And we're a bit defiant as in we know best and you know, what, what, what everyone else is wrong. It's all, all loaded. It's <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Ridiculous. Let me just stop you. Stop you for a second. No one does. We know what's best, better than Americans, my friend. Don't even Damn try. Right. <laughs> Don't even try to claim that you know you, that you are arrogant because we are the king 
of arrogance. We're like the only democracy in the world without universal health care. And we still think that we got the right idea. And it I hasn't used, worked for like, us. what, 200 yes. and some years? <laughs> but you know what? But don't, you, don't, but don't tell us that they do it better in England and Canada and Japan and Denmark <laughs> and every place else in the world. No, 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 no. I'm sure we've got our, we're right. And everyone else is wrong. We're the kings of that. I take it yeah. back. I absolutely take it yeah. back. You're <laughs> definitely right. We're the best yes. at knowing better. <laughs> I, I worked for Amazon for 15 years, right? So uh, I'm, I, I worked with Americans constantly, right? And yeah, you know, you're right. <laughs> you do know that. I was working a gig, I was working a gig once as a commercial, uh, commercial gig uh, convention. And part of my job was I had to go to like the third tee of a golf course and take pictures of the people hitting golf balls because this was they, this was part of the weekend getaway mm -hmm. and they wanted pictures of this. I'm like, okay. So I'm standing there taking pictures and the guy who was running the whole thing, who was uh, like the, their marketing guy that was running the whole thing for them, he's standing there. So we're talking over the course of about two hours that I'm standing on this golf course. And finally, he just goes, he was, and he was Canadian. And finally, he just goes, you know, uh, can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a question about America? And I was like, sure. I mean, you can ask me whatever you want. And you could tell he was nervous. He goes, what is it with you guys and guns? It's <laughs> <was> just like, <laughs> I, I can't. Have you ever you. shot one? It's just, kind of awesome. <laughs> I was just like, I was just like, but, but I felt bad because his whole expression, he was just like, he just couldn't, he was just like, I, we, I don't understand what it is with you guys and guns. And I was like, dude, I don't understand it either. So if you figure it out, let me know. Uh, you know, but that's, that's us. That's America. So, Borat, like for you, because you're under normal circumstances or like say pre-COVID, your main sort of part, the main part of your business was weddings and bar mitzvahs and events. Yeah. Well, I was weddings uh, in the beginning and then I picked up bar mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs, I would say probably in the year or two uh, before COVID, bar mitzvahs were starting to surpass weddings uh, as my principal. But my wife and I uh, had a wedding company. Uh, this is always a great a, a great tip if you are try if you're trying to get in and 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 find you know ways to get into a certain industry if you can actually become a part of that industry it makes it much easier it's much easier to get in with the planner if the planner is married to you so what we did was we started a beach wedding company for all the people who come to tourists who come down and want to get married on the beach in Florida right so um, we started the beach wedding company where my wife would provide, you know, the poles and the arches and the chairs and the officiant and all of that stuff. And I would provide the photography. So that was like, you know, could be up to a hundred weddings a year that I was doing, doing that. These were all mostly for the most part, very quick weddings, uh, like literally an hour on the beach is an hour shoot, the whole thing. And then, um, that got me a lot of weddings and a lot of wedding experience. And then uh, over the course of doing bar mitzvahs for years, I got, word of mouth started to build up and Facebook posts and people like that started to build up. And I became, you know, there were certain temples that were just like, I was the most recommended photographer at that temple. So I was doing a lot of bar mitzvahs. And if you have a Jewish uh, community where you live and you're not shooting bar mitzvahs, you are really missing out on a wonderful, wonderful opportunity because no one ever comes in to pick up their wedding album and says, this is great. I'm going to get married twice more in the next three years. And I'd like to also go ahead and book you for that. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is what happens with bar mitzvahs. They come in and they're like, this is great. And now my middle kid is having a bar mitzvah a year from now. And here's the date, put it in your calendar. And you're like, thanks, I'll send you a contract. It's the easiest book you'll ever get. And you make just as much money, if not more, off the bar mitzvah than you do off the wedding. Because they've been planning for this party for 13 years. They're not just starting out and trying to buy a home. Mom's a doctor, dad's a lawyer. 
they've got all of their business contacts are there. They've got to put on a good show. Their people are flying in from all over the country. They rent the nicest country club. They're prepared to pay for everything. They want an album. They want a photo booth. They want a, a session with the kid and a photo guest book. They want all that stuff. And when you do it for the first kid, you're like, great. That was a nice package. And I made a good coin on that. And I'm also going to get the same exact deal on the other two kids. Because you can't do it for one kid and not do it on the next kid. So you, if they got the big album, <clears throat> the next kid's going to get the big album. So uh, it's fantastic. And then the sister comes with her kids. And yeah, so I, I love bar mitzvahs. I would absolutely give up weddings completely and just do bar mitzvahs if I could. <laughs> and so then, you know, along with that, everything else, headshots, portraits and stuff like that. And then now I find myself doing more headshots, more and more headshots and some portraits. And of course, with COVID, I'm not doing any events at all. How are you sort of reacting to the pandemic? And mostly, um, it was the uh, curl up in the fetal position and cry reaction <laughs> that most people had. I am, um, I unlike Gary, did not attack it with a force of uh, of vigor. Of I'm going to, I'm going to redo my business, and I'm going to. I was just like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to watch Netflix and eat. You know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, it's what happens. We have multiple streams of income. You know, we, we own two other businesses. My wife owns a business. Uh, and then I own a business and we own a, a third, a third business as well. So we're okay if my business drops off and, um, me being older than Gary and I had cancer, so I'm immune compromised. I had to be sure that I didn't get in a situation where I might uh, get COVID so I, uh, I just kind of let it drift away a little bit for the most part and picked up what business I could, did a few events here and there, did a wedding and, and everything like that. But mostly I'm just waiting. You know, I'm, I'm at the starting blocks waiting for them to fire their gun and then I'm off to the races again. Uh, I've also been doing more teaching, making more videos for my YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got to put together a new program for Imaging USA next year. If I get in there, I've got to put together some videos to sell. Um, I became... Uh, a Fuji guy uh, a mm. few months ago and uh, the Fuji community has embraced me warmly, which has been wonderful. Uh, there's nothing better than, you know, after all these years and all this shooting, to be excited about a camera again, you know, to be, to be treating it like oh, a new camera. I've shot Canon for 12 or 13 years. My whole career, I shot Canon and I switched to Fuji about two months ago and redid my entire kit. I mean, I rebuilt everything, even my case, everything in my kit, with the exception of the two, off-camera lights, everything in my case is new. And that was exciting. I was like, okay, I'll take this time in the pandemic to rebuild myself and to and to try for something new and go in a different direction. I used to carry a ton of bulk and a ton of weight with me. And now I'm all about getting it as small as I can. That's mm -hmm. my camera case on the table behind me. And um I and so and that's been very fun and has kept me invigorated. You know, you gotta you got you gotta find the joy where you can. Now you're a couple of months into switching to Fuji. Still happy with the decision? I am. I am. Uh, but, you know, it's getting used to the controls. It's the muscle memory that's the hardest thing. I was shooting mm. some uh, candids the other day and I got home and a lot of them were out of focus, mostly hand movement. And I'm like, what? And I look and I realize that when I, you know, like with a Canon, if, if you're going to be shooting natural light candids like that, you just go, oh, great. Slap it in AV mode, mm. uh, aperture priority. And then you've got your presets already done on ISO and or whatever. I would probably set my ISO manually and let my shutter speed go to um, uh, auto and then shoot, 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 shoot. I've done that a million times. Now with Fuji, every control has to be set differently because it's got all those controls. So you set shutter speed to A, you set ISO to mm -hmm. A, and then you set your aperture where you want it as you're shooting. And when I set my ISO to A, because I didn't check it with my glasses, I didn't make it to A. 
And instead, my ISO is at like 320. So my shutter speed to compensate was shooting at about 20th of a second. So, so as long as no one was moving, I was fine. <laughs> but if there was movement, there was a little blur. And I was like, okay, well, lesson learned, you know, pay more attention to your controls. Don't get complacent. You've got to, you've got to go back to shooting like you just started while you learn and become, you know, muscle memory into this camera. And also, I don't know about you, but I don't pay a lot of attention to what's on the screen when I'm shooting. Like when you're shooting, are you I like, okay, what's my shutter speed? What's my ISO? What's my white balance? What's my, you know, are you looking at all the stuff that's around? I, I mean, after no. a while, don't you just kind of block that out? Do it instinctively, right? And yeah, yeah. that feels about right. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> right, and that's what I'm doing. I'm just blocking it out because how did I not notice that I was at a 20th of a second? You don't want to review the images real quick. Why did I look at the numbers? Why did I look yeah. at the numbers? And it's hubris. It's because yeah. I've been doing it so long. I just don't think I need to look at the numbers. The first time you started shooting, you looked at the numbers constantly to make sure they were right. I've just switched to Canon myself. From, Literally this, this week, I've just moved to Canon. And, from? Uh, Panasonic uh, Lumix, a GH5S, because I was doing primarily video. All right, um, all right. And I had Nikon for uh, stills. So I've thought... I've had enough of that. I'm going to consolidate. I'm going to go to one brand. You know, I've gone for the R6 as a stills and right. um, the C70 for um, for film. And, you know, they're both RF mounts and now I can use the same lenses across one and two. The menu systems are very similar and same kind of idea. But now I'm, I'm looking. I am paying attention to what's on those screens because I don't know these cameras yeah. that well yet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's really, it's really, it's really disconcerting when you pick up a foreign camera. I was at a wedding one time and I was using, I used the uh, Canon 5D Mark III and I was at a guest at a wedding and it was a photographer getting married and another photographer was shooting his wedding. And the other photographer was like, Bure, do me a favor and just shoot the first dance for me here. And he handed me his Canon D6 with a flash. And I was like, because uh, it wasn't exactly like my camera. And I was like, oh, oh, and I botched it. I mean, they, they were not, I was like ashamed of the pictures because they were not as good as they would have been if I had had my camera in my hand. Mm. And you just don't realize how you, I mean, because he didn't have his button set up exactly where I had my button set up and he didn't mm -hmm. have his, oh my gosh. It's, oh, you really got to just work with it and work with it. And work. I used to tell people in my classes that uh, when I first started with my Canon, I used to just sit on the couch with my camera in my hand while I was watching TV. And I would just go change the aperture, change the shutter speed. And I would do all of that with my fingers without looking at my camera because I need to teach myself to be able to do it in the dark. God, that that was my Wednesday night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious. That's, I was doing pretty much the same thing. Oh, that's so yeah. Funny. You got to teach yourself where is everything and how do I do it? And even though I had set this camera up the way I wanted to set up, still when I was on the job, um, like it was the eye tracking wasn't grabbing on the headshots, and I was like, okay, where did I put the eye tracking on off button? Where, which button did I program? to eye tracking. I have to find it real quick and turn it off and turn it on again and tell the, and then how come it's not eye track? Oh, because I probably have the box set too small. If I set full wide frame, it will catch the eye and track for me. So I had to do that. And this is learning stuff. It's been so long since I've had to learn anything with a can. Mm. I have this love-hate relationship with Nikon. I've shot Nikon for so long that I know it in the dark. You know, I've, I right. know the menu systems and all the button layouts, um, you know, and, and I'm just so familiar with it. But Maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe a year and a half. Maybe two years ago, I got um, I bought a uh, an X one hundred F, and I bought it because I wanted uh, you know I wanted to simplify. I wanted to have a little camera that I could take around with me because I realized that whenever we went out, 
anywhere. Um, that wasn't the job job. You know, that's the one. This is just for if anyone's watching this video, so you know what camera he's talking about. Exactly. So, you know, oh, incidentally, I think you have the same case as me. Hang on a minute. <laughs> this is the V and I had the F and before the F I had the S. And this right. is why I switched to Fuji right here. Yeah, this is why I switched to Fuji is because of this camera. That's the one. Well, I mean, you know, for me, the, the fact that it had like a fixed focal length was immediately attractive because I kind of figured, you know, this is like it's cutting it so back down to basics that it could be an interesting way of making photography interesting again. You yes. know, and uh, and plus. Yes, and that's and that's important. Yeah, it really is. You've got to rejuvenate yourself. Exactly. And and so, you know, for me at the time was I found that, you know, you know, we used to go out, let's say, as a family and I would take, you know, DSLR and X amount of lenses and whatever. But as an end result, you don't end up shooting really or you don't take the camera out as often because you're constantly having to go through the kerfuffle of putting a lens on and getting it out and all that. So I was looking for something that was like smaller, um, you know, just smaller, simpler and, and more efficient in a way. And um and I really fell in love with that camera. And it's you, f you found yourself enjoying it more. Yeah. Didn't you? Absolutely. yeah your story is exactly the same as my story. I did the same thing. I looked mm -hmm. at it and it also looks like the XT30. And I had, and I got one from Fuji and tried it out. And, 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 uh, and it was it's small and nice and really good. You mm -hmm. put the lenses on it. But I, I ultimately, I was like, if I get a camera with interchangeable lenses, then I'm going to want to carry a bunch of lenses. And if I carry a bunch of lenses, I'm not going to want to take it out of the bag or I'm not going to want to take it exactly. with me to this or take it with me to that. Exactly. I need to force myself. I need to actually limit myself so yeah. that I don't screw up myself. Yeah. I need to force myself into being simpler. And that was exactly. why I bought that camera. And, and then eventually I fell in love with the entire Fuji system because of that camera. That's like a gateway drug, oh, uh, the Fuji X system. You know, and funnily enough, I, I did a couple of videos for like, you know, different uh, type of purposes the other day. And I kind of thought, you know, I wonder what would happen if I didn't shoot everything on the Nikon that I normally shoot all this on. But what would happen if I just used my little Fuji and shot on that? And I have to tell you, the like the colors that come out of that camera on, like, yeah. on video. And of course, it's not like, you know, it's not the most practical video camera and all the rest of it. But actually, straight out of camera... The files just looked great. Oh, you're so using oh you're using the X100F uh, for video. Yeah, I did. Yeah, oh, and I was yeah. really See, surprised. No. Yeah, I was with no really image surprised. stabilization. Wow. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it was not a tripod, so it was you know it was okay. like talking talking kind of stuff. But man, the, you know those files looked so good, and um now I'm sort of I'm torn, and I'm kind of thinking, man, you know, my Nikon's aging. You know, I'm, I'm getting to the point where you know I either replace the body or I look at kind of doing what, what Nick has done and, you know, changing, changing completely. And as much as I, as much as I think, you know, from purely from a practicality point of view, since Nick and me work together a lot, uh, it would make sense for me to switch to Canon also, because then, you know, we would have, we could, you know, sure. You know, swap gear or whatnot. Uh, but I am so, I'm so like drawn to to uh like let's say the xt4 is the one that i'm looking at at the moment it's just like i don't know uh, you know but as my wife keeps reminding me there are other bills to pay for first yes <laughs> so, you know. well listen i made you know i've already made several videos about this for my youtube channel and why i switched to fuji and why i wouldn't like i thought about doing it when the xt3 was out and i didn't because of the ergonomics i, I fuji doesn't have good ergonomics it's not a hand it's not a camera that's comfortable in your hand for seven hours mm -hmm. uh and so i didn't switch then when the xt4 came out and had ibis and other things that they had fixed that i really liked 
And then on top of that, I was at the point where I just felt hey, I got to make the jump. Mm. I'm using, you know, I'm using the Mark three. They're already up there. They're, they're at the Mark four, the Mark five. And now they're, they've got the R five and the R six. I've got to make the jump. My camera now has become agent. I used to have the cutting edge camera and now it's become agent. I've got to make the jump and I've got to go to mirrorless. And then price became a big factor too. Mm. Because once I started looking at the pricing, it was like, I could just get, for, I think I built my whole kit out for about five grand. That's my yeah. whole kit. That's everything. Camera, backup camera, lenses, flashes, off-camera lights, batteries, mm. everything. And the most, like one of the most expensive rolling cases the Think Tank makes, because thank God someone finally made a case with four wheels on the bottom. I've been begging <laughs> for this for 10 years. <laughs> I try to make one myself. I'm like, well, someone please make a rolling case with four wheels on the bottom because we, I don't care if it fits in the overhead. I'm so sick of every camera manufacturer making a bag. Look, it fits in the overhead and you can wear it as a backpack when you're hiking the Teton Mountains. I'm like, no, I'm going down to the BFW hall to shoot a wedding reception. I just need something as easy to get up the steps and navigate through the hotel elevator. I don't need backstraps and all this other stuff. I need something that's convenient to a gig shooter. And no one makes a bag for us. No one makes a bag for Mm. gig shooters, people who aren't flying with their bag or hiking with their bag. Yeah, and may, and I've got designs, and I've talked to people. I want to make my own bag, uh, and it's too expensive. I need to kickstart it. Yeah, but uh, so I but but Think Tank finally came out one that's got four wheels. Oh, it's a dream. You just go rolling into anything, and you just just rolling it beside you. It's so easy to go. Oh, it's fantastic. But that bag is smaller than the big Pelican case I used to carry. Yeah. So if you want to have that bag, Bouray, you've got to have smaller stuff in it. You, you know, know, they also just recently uh, brought out a duffel bag. <laughs> A duffel bag? <laughs> yeah, so t- Think Tank and I'm making a duffel bag. Yeah, I saw that the other day. They're like, Think Tank duffel bag. I'm like, it's a duffel bag. I it's know. a big open sack with a pocket on the side. What exactly. <laughs> I mean, I love Think Tank. I'm both my bags are Think Tank bags, and I think they do genius stuff. But the duffel bag thing is one of those clearly, why don't you just make a t-shirt? You know, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a duffel bag. There's nothing more simple in the world than a duffel bag. There's no new technology in the duffel bag industry. It's probably that we also, need to be taking advantage it's of. It's probably also one of the most expensive duffel bags you can get on the market. Probably, right yeah. yeah. <laughs> probably and still, so. still strangely addictive. You're paying just to have the little Think Tank logo on. There. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's green. Well, of course, it's a duffel bag. <laughs> oh, yeah. So switching, switching uh, camera systems, is a, that's, a, that's a tough tough thing i'm like i still haven't really been able to make up my mind as to you know what i'm going to do maybe later on maybe later on this year i think I might just about making the jump to a new camera system yeah 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 i mean it's you know i mean as always you know if money was no object you right. know i would use oh i have an r5 oh yeah yeah i'd yeah. have a hasselblad <laughs> right <laughs> Whatever. I'd have Gary. I'd have Gary's camera. If I was rich like Gary, I would have Gary's camera. I'd have an R5. Uh, I absolutely would have stayed with Canon if money was no object. Mm. The main reason I went to Fuji, you know, not not, not the main. There were three or four reasons, but money was money was a big part of it because Canon cameras just keep getting more expensive, and Fuji yeah. cameras don't, mm. uh, and Fuji lenses don't. You know, and also, I think we reached a point in the progression of sensors as it always does happen, that it used to be that if you were a serious photographer, you shot medium format Mm. and you would poo-poo somebody who was shooting full frame. Like if you were shooting in a studio with film, in a studio, you had your Hasselblad, you had your, you know, whatever, you had your full, you had your medium format. That's what you were shooting with. And full frame was only if you were going on on location and and maybe not even then. That was for the, not the really serious photographers because it just wasn't as good as medium format. Mm. And then full frame got really good. And so when our generation came along, our full frame was our top. It was, you know, full frame. I shoot full frame. Oh, what do you shoot? 
Oh, I have a crop sensor. Okay. Yeah. Crop sensor. All right. Well, I shoot full frame. You know, <laughs> I shoot full frame. You know, and meanwhile, Nick's over here going, you mean with the micro four thirds? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't even let you in the conversation. Yeah. You're not yeah. even allowed in the room. You are get barred out. from the club. Yes, just get out. You're not even allowed in the room, right? So you're like full frame, full frame, full frame. I'm full frame. Of course I'm full frame. I'm, full, I'm a pro. Of course I'm full frame. And I think we're reaching that point now, and the full frame people don't want to admit it, but we're reaching that point now where crop sensor is the new full frame, which was the new uh, you know, medium format, that crop sensor has reached the point where it is good enough. Mm. You know, you get a, I'm shooting headshots all day the other, uh, uh, two days ago with my Fuji and I'm at F2.8 and hundred at 230 millimeters. And I've got a beautiful blurry, uh, bokeh in the background and everything is beautiful and the color is great and the files are big and there's just, I'm sorry, it's indistinguishable. I know people say, oh, well, if you get in there real close and you zoom it up full size and get a magnifying glass, you might notice that nobody cares about that. <laughs> okay, it's fun. It's fun for us to talk about that, but nobody cares about that. We're talking about a public that thinks a great photo is something that was shot on a cell phone where literally the, the lens is so small, you, you, it's like the size of a pill. And they think that's great. So the fact that my sensor is this big instead of this big is not going to make a difference in their world. And it's not going to make a difference in my world. And you certainly know that, Nick, because you're shooting micro four thirds when you were shooting with Panasonic. Yeah. I mean, that, that sensor was, was great on it, you know? Oh, yeah. It stills weren't great at all, but its video was fantastic. Yes. Absolutely fantastic. You know, it, but you're right. Sensors have got so, they're so far ahead now that, you well, know. Well, I mean, there was a time when Ansel Adams was shooting on an eight by 10 plate, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's just everything's going to get smaller over time. But people always resist change. Yeah. And I'm not saying that, listen, again, if if I wanted to spend $10,000 to rebuild my kit, I'd have an R5 right now. Yeah. I would have gone with an R5. There's things I like better about Fuji, but I'm a Canon shooter. I love their work. They're fantastic. I don't fault them. And I absolutely would get many, uh, full frame if I could afford full frame. If I could afford medium format, I'd go to medium format. You know, I would. But do I have to? That's the question. Because as a businessman, ultimately, you have to make the decision based on what's best for your business and best for your, your bottom line. And for me, I just I was just like, is there anything, is full frame going to enable me to do anything that I can't do with the crop sensor? And the answer was no. Yeah. There was a time when it did. When the, when the 5Ds came out, the Mark III's and the Mark II's, the low light performance on those cameras was noticeably different and noticeably better than anything else out there. Because I had a crop sensor and I went to full frame and working in a dark reception at 3600 ISO, that was a huge difference. I didn't, mm -hmm. have, to I didn't have to use noise uh, anti-noise software anymore on my photos. I didn't have to do any of that stuff because it was so much better. And that was worth it. And I got 10 years out of value on that. Yeah. But now, nah. Yeah, it's, I mean, I find, I, find, I find exactly the same thing. I, um, I, some years ago, I started, when I first started in like professional photography, I started shooting concerts. And so, you know, there was a point where I needed to find a camera body that could really deal with low light performance. And so at the time, the D750 had just come out. And that was as far as like low light performance was concerned. That was sort of, you know, the, the, the bells and whistles. And, um, and it worked fantastically well in that kind of situation. But of course, back then, there wasn't really very much around in the way of competition. But of course, now, you know, six, seven years later or something, you look around and there, there's there's a, a plethora of, uh, of of camera bodies that can really achieve well, the same thing. Gary and I say this all the time, you can't buy a bad camera anymore. No, mm -hmm. exactly. No, you really can't. It doesn't matter. Like, what, what's the best camera? Whatever you want it to be. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we, hand. we we truly have we we truly have reached the point that everyone is always saying it's not the camera, it's the photographer. It's never been more true than now. I, because if you you buy you know my backup camera I bought used for eight hundred dollars mm. and I absolutely could shoot an event with that and it would look every bit as good as the camera that I was using ten years ago that I paid three thousand dollars for yeah and it's you not know, like but, those those photos from ten ten years ago were bad right <laughs> so. no no and that's the other thing people always people were perfectly fine with the way my pictures looked ten years ago yeah. and so you know you have to be careful that you don't get too much you know it's, it's fun to do it because it's fun to do it. It's fun to be like, Oh, let me, you know, in the perfect camera and look at this and look at the difference in these specs. And we do it every week on the podcast. It's fun to do all that, but it stops at your wallet. And that's when, as a business person, that's when you get like, I would love to have a freestanding. Gary has a freestanding studio. I don't, I have a home studio. I would love to have a freestanding space like Gary has. But then when I look at the numbers, I'm like, I don't do enough business to justify a freestanding space. And if I got a freestanding space, I would have to totally adjust my business model in order to support that freestanding space. Yeah. So don't do it because I, I would feel like more of a professional photographer if I had an actual studio. Yeah. You, you, you know, see, I, 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 I know so many people who yeah. do that and I'm like, you're sinking yourself. Yeah. It, I completely agree. I, in a, in a previous life, I um, used to run a contemporary music school. And so, you know, that started with, originally started, goes back almost like 20 years or something. But, you know, originally, like many musicians, you know, you start teaching and so on. And then you get to the point where your timetable is pretty full. You can't take on any more students. So you do the usual thing. You increase your prices. You lose some students. You get some more space. You book some more. But there's, you know, it's not, you reach that point where you go like, okay, um, if I can't take on any more students, I might as well hire somebody else who can teach for me. And then you very quickly arrive at the idea of setting up a school, which is exactly what I did. And then, of course, you're very quickly at the point where you go like, okay, so now I need classrooms. Now I need a building. And, you know, I need to set, I need to actually have, you know, uh, brick and mortar attached to the yes. business. And that's exactly what I did. And I had a, I had a, a school and, you know, two buildings actually for, almost like a little over two decades, well, a little over 12 years, I think, something like that. And what that really does is it's like it puts a chain around your neck. Yes, it puts a huge very, chain around. Very quickly, because you very quickly realize that, you know, whilst previously, I don't know, you know, this probably would take, previously you kind of go like, ah, you know, if I made like 40 grand a year or something, I'd, I'd be all right, you know. I can survive. So now you're at 140. Right. And then you have staff, so you got to pay their salaries. Uh, so now you're at 200, you know, and before you know it, the, like your minimum amount of money that you need to make to actually keep your head over water has hugely, hugely increased. And that puts so much more pressure on you. And then as, as an end result, you know, you, there are times when you end up, or at least I felt, you know, I'm just working to to keep that building running yes you know yes you're just feeding the monkey yeah feed the monkey and, exactly. we, and one of the reasons i survived in the last year is that my expenses were so low mm. i mean i mean in the middle i i bought a whole new camera setup in the middle of a pandemic when i hadn't <laughs> right. worked in four months yeah <laughs> so i had the money for that and that money came out of my business account yeah because i had my expenses were so low and they got even lower once COVID hit, yeah, yeah, business dropped off, but my expenses completely dropped off. I mean, I, I was putting gas in my car once every six weeks, yeah, same. right? And I had no other expenses. And I was pleasantly surprised that it's got, I pay myself a salary, of course, and I've paid myself a salary this entire time and I've never had to dip into savings. Hmm. 
you know, and it's because I have no overhead. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I was really pleasantly surprised to discover with COVID how well, how easy it is for us to live the same life we've always lived with a whole lot less money mm. just by, just by, oh, guess what? We're not going to eat out five nights a week anymore because yeah. we couldn't eat it. We couldn't eat out. Right. So we started eating at home and I told my wife, I'm like, I think we're saving a thousand dollars a month just because we've been eating at home. <laughs> yeah. I, you <laughs> you know? know, we, and, and of course, like many families, you know, we made uh, similar, similar changes because we, you know, we, at some point, it's quite early on, we realized that because I didn't like, you know, I, I, I work from home for the most part and my wife is a teacher, but she teaches in a school literally across the road. So her commute is 30 seconds on foot. And so I saw that, you know, there was, there was a point where we thought like, why are we paying for two cars? We don't need two cars. Yeah. We started thinking that I started thinking, with my wife. I started thinking about that. I was like, she was like, Oh, you know, now our daughter learned to drive. And she was like, Oh, she's got my car all the time. And she goes to school all the time. I'm like, where do you go? Hmm. We work from home. We don't ever go anywhere. As long as there's a car exactly. in the driveway, either one of us can go to the grocery store or whatever we need. What, That's right. What's the problem? She's like, we got to get her a car. I'm like, why? We, she's the only one that ever leaves the house and we have two cars. Yeah. She could just take one of ours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. It's the same thing. I mean, we, what we did, we actually sold both of our cars and we bought a hybrid car instead. So now we oh, have one car, which in running, I mean, you know, paying for it is a little bit more expensive because it is a hybrid, but actually you save gas, you know, um, on top of it, so it kind of it, you know it pays for itself. So in a in a weird way, we now have one car that's that's bigger, and actually we're paying less for it, you know, and it's a lot more economical, and we're right. fine, you know. As a family, I have three kids, or we have three kids. Um, we're actually totally fine, you know. We haven't missed, ha you know, not having two cars. So we've kind of gone, you know, from being a two car family to a one ca car family as a total result of this pandemic. Um, because I don't think we would have, you know, if, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, it's one of these things, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, I don't think we would have even thought about it. Right. No, you wouldn't have. You don't, you you don't ever think about cutting back yeah, until exactly. you're forced to cut back. And then when you're forced to cut back, you find, geez, there's all these ways I can cut back. And, exactly. And then, and then you start to regret because then you think, oh, if I had done this 15 or 20 years ago, I'd have an, an extra hundred thousand dollars sitting in my bank account right now. Exactly. I'd be able to retire early if I had just been more frugal in my life. <laughs> exactly. You, know, you, well. you think about, oh my gosh, the money I spent. You think about my my parents. Uh, you know, they were frugal, and we had one car until gosh, I was ten. We had one car. My dad took the car to work, and my mom was trapped at home. Yeah. You know, they were frugal. We never ate out. Go to McDonald's. What is it? Your birthday? Yeah. We didn't eat out. There was none of that stuff that was going on. And then my parents were able to retire quite comfortably and 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 have a great retirement and and everything else because they were frugal. But uh, I remember once I was. I was thinking about taking another job and I couldn't decide if I wanted to take it. And I was talking to a, a friend of mine and I said, I said, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm going to like that job or not. I said, but it's more money. And mm -hmm. she said, yeah, but don't you think if you make more money, you're going to find a way to spend it. Yep. And I was like, and I was like, well, of course I am. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And then years later, looking back on it, I realized exactly how right she was yeah. that making more money is not the answer to your problem. You're going to find a way to spend it. You know, you have a Netflix subscription and then you make more money and suddenly you have a Disney Plus subscription and a CBS yeah. All Access subscription and a Prime subscription. You find a way to spend the money. Hmm. That was a super interesting conversation that we had in last week's episode where we interviewed Donna Did It, who's a Canadian YouTuber um, hailing from the really rather freezing city of Edmonton, um, Alberta. And uh, so he started out his YouTube career, you know, just doing doing vlogs. 
essentially. Um, and f- what he was saying was like, for the first couple of years, uh, nothing really happened on his channel um, because nobody really searches for what Dunna does on a Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> you know, when he started reviewing gear and when he started talking about this lens and that lens and that new body, whatever, that's when things started to turn around for him very dramatically. And the crazy part is you don't even have to have the gear. You could be like, my first reaction to this announcement. And right at that time, everybody is looking for more information on that particular piece of gear. And so you'll get so much more play on a video like that than something that you took ages to, to shoot and conceive and produce. And so, you know, my favorite videos have like 500 views and my stupid one is like, I just point a camera at myself when I talk about my R5 and it's got yeah. like 30,000 views. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a, it, what, what do they call that? It's basically a return on investment. Like how yes. much effort are you putting in versus how many views are you getting? And honestly, for me, my favorite stuff to watch is like Casey Neistat who does these really compelling vlogs but like they're really clever and the shots are all really clever and he kind of goes around that thing that he's doing that day and it's not necessarily about anything in particular and i just love it and find that stuff fascinating mm-hmm. but like that's a lot of effort to produce and i None think it would be, i see what you what you see with youtubers is like if you look back at guys like peter mckinnon and maddie hapoya and, and people who are content creators with million plus followers if you go back to their early stuff it was a lot of tutorials sitting at their desks mm-hmm. really and then once their channel was making money to the point where they it was worth putting in that effort, now they do. And they make videos about whatever they... It doesn't even matter what their video is. It's interesting to watch because the production value is so good and you like mm-hmm. their personality. And so you see that shift. And I think that's a pretty natural progression. So if Bure's channel is like, you know, he gets 100,000 subscribers and he's well. making... Yeah. <laughs> when well, that well, happens, I'm going to have an editor and I'm going to have, you know, yeah. exactly, exactly. Exactly. When you're making, when you can make $50,000 on a YouTube channel, and let me tell you, I've done the math based on putting out one video a week that's consistently liked as much as your videos. If you're putting out similarly liked content, that that's the, the channel average of what a YouTuber should be doing with a hundred thousand followers, you can make fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 a year in just YouTube ad revenue. Gross. Gross. Yeah. Right. Because if you want to see a good video, uh, Jared Poland just did a video called um, How Much Money I Make on YouTube. Oh, I saw that. Where he he breaks down all the money and he's like, we just had the best year ever last year. But still, when it's all said and done, I make about $50,000 with the best year we've ever had. He said, because... Yeah, you're thinking, wow, you're making six figures on YouTube. He's like, yeah, but I also have a studio and I have two full-time guys who are doing the editing and the shooting for me. And I have all of this stuff that I have to pay for and taxes. So when it's all said and done, I don't really make that much money off YouTube. Right, well, that's the thing is that when you have that audience, you open up other ways to monetize the channel. That's what he said. I have an online class called Kickstart Your Headshot Business that I've been selling since 2018. I did a video that's got a thousand views on it. And I mentioned my class and gave a discount code with the word YouTube at the beginning of it. And I mentioned it offhand at the opening to this video. And I sold, you know, I made like a thousand dollars selling that class just off of a video with a thousand views. So like what you can stand to make when you have a larger audience, it's like your main revenue is not going to be from YouTube. I mean, that's why all the YouTubers no. are like, this uh, video is brought to you by Squarespace or Skillshare or whatever the heck, because that's yeah. honestly where the real money is going to come in. It's, I think there's a danger there, though, because with, you know, you mentioned Peter McKinnon's channel. Um, it's one of the one of the things where, and I think this also is like a natural progression where, of course, as 
like you know you get in you get into a channel because you like the content and then of course when that changes to the point where you think like i'm not sure whether i've just been watching a commercial for a ford right whatever that was you know that's then then you as as an audience probably naturally move on to other channels but of course peter mckinnon at that point generates a new audience that are into the kind of stuff that you know he'll take yeah. some with him and he'll gain he'll i'm gain sure that more. there's audience turnover but at the same time once i you know it depends on the type of channel you have like if if the channel is based on the personality of the host Honestly, if people like you, they'll watch you do anything. Bure and I were just discussing this the other day. It's like when you teach a workshop or you teach a class or a platform class at WPPI or Imaging USA, you can give, you don't have to give as much actionable take-home information as you think you do. Like you want a packet full of stuff, but one, you're going to overload people's brains, you know, and, and two, you, if they like, if you're funny and engaging and interesting and authentic, people will sit there for two hours and listen to you mm-hmm. and take home two or three useful things and be happier than if they got a very dry program that was full of incredible actionable information that they that they filled up ten pages of notes. And so that's I think a lot of that ends up being if it's the type of YouTube personality that trades on a particular person's personality and if that's your person and you're tuned into them up i mean like a pretty much watch whatever they do and if the especially if you are a content creator or aspire to be one the production value has a lot of education in it to sure. see how they're making the things that they're making but the irony of becoming a big youtuber is that a lot of it just becomes snake self-referential like a snake eating its own tail it's like a lot of their videos are about how they make videos <laughs> yeah yeah. It's not like, hey, learn this in Photoshop or check out this camera or this is how I made this image. It's like, here's my YouTube lighting setup, you know? See, that was really interesting when, when we were talking to Donna last week that there was two specific things. One one was actually, as you get uh, as a bigger channel, you become more of an entertainer than you know anything else. But the second thing, which was really interesting that he said, is that he's always shot APS-C and he moved to full frame and he started doing videos more on full frame related gear and he started losing subscribers. His views went down, all of that kind of stuff. So going back to what we were talking about with um, Bure earlier, that, you know, why not stick with APS-C? They're just, you know, the sensors are just as good these days. And so he's actually switched back to doing a lot more stuff about APS-C um, related gear and now his views and well, subscribers have gone back up. If you look at my channel, my views for anything where I talk about the Fuji X100 series is are greater than any video I ever make about general concept or general theory or how to shoot or the XT4 or anything, because people love this camera. That's another thing. You know, you can be one of those guys who just tries to make to have content that covers a broad spectrum, and that's great. Like in my photography business, that's what I do. I cover a broad spectrum, but you're also going to be well served if you can find a niche. And just become a the people's go-to guy in that niche. You know, so anytime I make yeah. a video that isn't specifically about the X100V or the or the 100F, I know that I'm not going to get near the attention to it that I get if I make a video about that camera. Yeah, if you stop making X100V videos, you would lose subscribers. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've got to make you you know you got to find it you know. And but for me, it you know, and all this is well and good, but for me, the underlying reason and driving force behind everything is it just has to be fun to do. Because, you know, I didn't start my YouTube channel because I was hoping to make money on it. I didn't start my podcast because I was hoping to make money on it. I did it because this will be fun to do. The minute it starts to not be fun, 
I'm not going to do it anymore. So if it's not fun to spend all day setting up camera equipment to shoot my video, then I, I, I you know, if I know if, as long, if I keep doing that thing, that's not fun. Eventually, I just won't make videos. But if it gets big enough to where you could pay someone else to do the not fun yes. bits. Yes. I can pay yeah. someone else to do that for me. That's yeah, great. Exactly. When we realized that podcasting is actually a lot more fun than we initially thought it might be, um, you know, and, and I think we realized that, you know, we're going to carry this on even when the pandemic is long gone. Um, what really started to, to come into that is, you know, when we started having guests on the show, that really became extremely fun for us for a number of reasons. One was that um, it's just fun generally talking to other photographers, just generally. But, you know, when you, you're at a point where you speak to people and you learn something from every conversation that you have, and, you know, this might be, you might talk to, I don't know, you know, I, you know, we talked to Aaron Nace uh, not too long ago. We learned a lot. I learned a lot about business-related issues, you know, not necessarily about Photoshop, but about the way that he reacted to uh, the, the pandemic, the way he changed his business around and stuff like that. So that's really when, you know, there's, there's an immediate take home for both Nick and I, I think, uh, which which really drives us on to make more of those of these episodes, because not only, you know, are we hoping to create content that's really useful to our listeners, you know, obviously, but it's really just simply very useful for ourselves because, you know, we're having a great time doing it. Uh, of course, we get to play around with cameras and do all that kind of stuff uh, and talk about photography, but we actually, you know, we're learning something in the in the process. Well, there's other sides too. I mean, there's so many benefits to doing something like a podcast or or doing a YouTube channel. One, of course, is you get to you get to learn a lot of stuff. Two, you get to meet a lot of people who you wouldn't otherwise. It's an introduction, right? Sure. I mean, you know, you're just sending me an email out of the blue. Hey, would you like to be on my podcast? Now, if you didn't have a podcast, you never would have emailed me or known me or whatever. And now we're friends, right? Correct. I come to London, I'll be like, hey, I'm going to be in England, and you know, let's get together and have whatever it is you guys crumpets tea and, and, tea and crumpets. I think is the <laughs> I guess something. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Let's go. I don't know. Let's go colonize. Another, oh man, for sure. Sure, 100%. Whatever it is you guys do for fun. And no, the, uh, actually, the British national pastime is queuing. So if you want to go wait in a <laughs> queuing, line, together, yeah, let's queue. <laughs> which is I'm really devastating because nobody can queue now because of the pandemic. There's no queuing. The British are just despondent without queuing. I would just be happy so. if you would discover ice. Just discover ice. Just, <laughs> Put ice you know, in your can drinks. I just get some ice in my friggin' drink? That's right. Anyway, um, so there's that. But then the other really weird thing that you guys might experience, that Gary and I absolutely experienced, I think was that you're just like uh, sitting around. You're like, hey, let's put on a show in the barn. And so you start calling people up who are like, oh, you know, can we call that guy? That guy's kind of, hmm, I'm asking me in the podcast. And like, okay. And so you have that guy. A perfect example of this would be Jerry Jonas. Do you guys know who Jerry Jonas is? Mm -hmm. Okay. So Jerry Jonas is about as rock star as you can get in the photography world when it comes to weddings. So we got on the phone with Jerry from Australia to have him talk about WPPI and their image competition because Jerry was running it one year. So we get him and his wife on the phone and we talk about image competition. Well, no, it was just him. I think. Or maybe it was his wife. Oh, it was both of them. It was Jerry and Melissa. It was both yeah. of Jerry. And who? Melissa. Thank you, Jerry and Melissa. We have them on the phone and we do the thing. Then, like, we keep doing the podcast, keep doing the podcast, and I'm doing the things that I'm doing for PPA and, and, and doing those live things and all that kind of stuff, right? The teaching and everything. Our, our paths never cross again. Five years later, I'm in Las Vegas at WPPI. And I get invited to Jerry Jonas's house. And I'm like, oh, okay. I guess, you know, because I know somebody who knows him or whatever. I get there. His wife comes up to me and goes, Ooh, Ray Perry, I've been wanting to meet you in person for so long. And I'm like, <laughs> how do you even know who I am? 
How do you even know I exist? You're Jerry Gionis's wife. Yeah. You're, I mean, whatever. And it's because of this stupid little podcast. I, I would argue that Jerry Jonas is Melissa Jonas's husband. There you go. But you, but you see, my point is that uh, doing stuff like this will open up your world very wide to so many different people who will then take you in and become friends with you who you might never have met before. I mean, even, you know, even now, now you guys get to say that you're friends with us and in normal circumstances, we would never even talk to you. Never. You know, we, we would, I, we'd just be like, those guys Ew. with the thing Ew. and the, the nesting doll lenses behind him, like some sort of artwork. <laughs> uh, there's, I'm not having That's anything right. to do with either one of those people. But now, because you had us on the podcast, we have to be nice to you. And yes, like three exactly. or four years from now, you could be huge and we'd be like, hey, when are you going to have us on the podcast again? See the power we wield. It'd be like, <laughs> could you have us on the podcast again? And you'd be like, we don't have time for you, bro. Sorry. That's right. It's, I mean, you know, it's, um, I think it's like it's like anything, you know. Uh, it's the same, really, in the music industry. Um, when you know, when you first start to get into the music industry, and you you end up, you know, working with people whose names you've actually heard before, right? You know, that's you have the same sort of reaction. Um, but I think, you know, we we always dance the dance of joy when we get a, an email back saying like, yeah, okay, cool, let's, you know, when when do you want to when do you want to do the podcast? That's always, you know, that's always great. Uh, for us, really, not only because it means, you know, we can have another uh, guest on the show, but also because it just means yeah, we're going to have a really fun conversation, you know, with somebody who, you know, we, you know, we might just know from, you know, the Internet or like, you know, right. it, you know, it, it's fascinating to me because I remember my very first big photography conference in 2007 and or 2008, maybe mm. went to Imaging USA, USA in Nashville, Tennessee. And that's that was like that's our biggest one, I think, that we have in the States. Um, and I, I was a new in the photography business. And my my girlfriend, Julie, who is now my wife at the time, we were walking around and everything was a magic show. It was like, oh, my God. Oh my God. And we go into a room, we would watch a speaker and be like, oh, they're so amazing. Oh man, we'll never, we'll never be able to be that good. We'll never be able to be that successful. And like, and we were just, we just left like buzzing with a mix of like defeated, like we'll never be that famous. And also the excitement of all the possibility. And all of these photographers were like superheroes and rock stars and, and like everybody's David Lee Roth and Freddie Mercury and, and, uh, and Celine Dion, except they're not. You know, like the I, and and all these years later, thirteen years later in the industry, and it's it's amazing to me that I was ever like that with people that they're just photographers that are further on down the road, and most everybody I know in the industry is is just a sweetheart. Oh you know, sure. I mean, oh yeah. If, you're, if yeah. you want to talk about the the bell curve for good people, talk about Jerry and Melissa as a great example, but they would be like you know, everybody knows them and loves them. Like if you don't know Jerry and Melissa and don't like them, if you've met them, spent any time with them and you don't like them, there is something legitimately wrong with you, I promise. But that being said, all these big names, you know, when I was saw like Pete Wright, who's, who works for Canon now, and he's an incredible wedding photographer from Virginia. And he was on stage, this big conference I was at. I was in the audience. I won one of his giveaways and I was so geeked out. I had lunch with him yesterday at a barbecue restaurant in Sarasota. Like he's a good friend now. And like, the the point is is like it's we're all in this little this family together and one of the things that i think about often is that we don't really have coworkers and i think that we cling to each other a little harder because you guys are our coworkers so we have come to the end of camera Tech podcast episode 44 it was an absolute blast gary Hughes and bura perry thank you so much for being our guests on this show thanks for having us thank you 
Excellent. We will be back next week with episode 45. As per usual, every Thursday, of course, if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast, make sure you head over to YouTube and check out not only our sultry voices, but uh, you can see our beautiful faces in full Technicolor. Um, also, remember to hit the subscribe button, hit the bell, do all the things that every YouTuber tells you every time you watch a video. Um, enough said. See you next week. Bye.